The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Reverend Tedrick, thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to come and minister God's Word. Uh, to this community uh, that I love and pray for. At this time, let's turn to uh, Gospel of John, according to uh, Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Amen. The redemptive historical context of Jesus' words in this passage is, of course, the vineyard song in Isaiah 5. In it, the Lord complained about Israel's fruitlessness, despite all the care God provided to it. And that pretty much summed up the quality of Israel's service to the Lord throughout his history, except for a few bright spots. And it was against this background that Jesus said, I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine because unlike the nation of Israel, he bore the fruit that God desired and delighted in. It is no surprise that the idea of fruitfulness is an important theme in this passage. Jesus said that fruitless branches would be taken away, but the branches that bore fruit would be pruned so they could bear much more fruit, verse 2. He called on his disciples to abide in him so that they could bear fruit, verses uh, verses 4 and 5. Anyone who did not abide in Christ and therefore did not bear fruit would be thrown away and cast into the fire to be burned, verse 6. And God would be glorified when his disciples would bear much fruit, verse 8. What did Jesus mean by fruit? Some think that it is the fruit of righteousness. Others say that the fruit refers to the fruit of the Spirit. Still others believe that the fruit refers to souls that will be saved through the apostolic witness. I think that since Jesus did not specify, we should take fruit here to be all-inclusive. This should include the fruitfulness of our ministry as well. How then 
do we become fruitful. We cannot bear any fruit unless we abide in Christ first. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 4. To abide in Christ is to be united with Christ in a mystical, spiritual, covenantal union, just as the branches abide in the vine in an organic unity. This is not something we can attain with our efforts and merit. This privilege of abiding in Christ is so noble and so valuable that no sinner can buy it or earn it. It has to be freely granted by God out of his abundant grace. So when Jesus tells us to abide in him, he's not telling us to get ourselves grafted to Christ somehow. Objectively speaking, we already abide in Christ through faith. Jesus hints at this by using different imagery of cleansing in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So then by commanding us to abide in him, Jesus is telling us to continue to abide in him, to remain in him. There is one particular mode of abiding in Christ by which we bear fruit, and that is prayer. Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When you hear these words, do you feel hopeful and get excited about prayer? Or do these words rather raise doubts because they are too good to be true? Because you already know from your experience that they are not true. You can name many petitions that did not get answered. But if we read these words carefully, we can see that Jesus qualifies his promise with this condition. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. He is saying that if we pray according to his words, his will, not according to our desires, whatever we ask will be done for us. John later on expresses the same thought in this way. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, 1 John 5.14. Jesus is not trying to make his promise sound more extravagant than it actually is. The promise he is making here is a royal gesture. Something like King Ahasuerus' words to Esther when she requested his audience. Remember, he said, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. Moved by her beauty, he was saying that he would give her whatever she asked him out of his royal generosity. Even to the half of his kingdom. Do you think he would have done it if Esther actually asked for the half of his kingdom? I doubt it. But he was expressing how he was feeling so generous at that moment. Jesus' promise is even more extravagant, isn't it? We had no goodness and beauty to inspire his generosity toward us. Yet he offers to us the abundant riches of God's grace. And he was not saying this because he was feeling particularly generous that day. No, he desired this even before the foundation of the world. 
And he left his heavenly throne and glory and crossed the chasm between heaven and earth, between the creator and creatures, between divinity and humanity to grant us this promise. And by announcing this promise, Jesus is signaling that he has ushered in a new age in which the doors of God's lavishing generosity are open wide toward his people, toward you, in an unprecedented manner by his name. If so, how can we afford not to pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ? What great loss is ours if we do not exercise this privilege? It's a good thing that Jesus gives us this extravagant promise. Such an extravagant promise is what we desperately need for our total helplessness. Jesus says in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is true in an absolute sense. That we cannot do anything, even the most mundane things like eating and drinking, even the things we are most proficient at in our profession and hobbies, it's all true. After all, in Him, we live and move and have our being. Apart from Him, therefore, we cannot live, nor move, nor have our being. If that is true, it is even more true for our fruit-bearing, is it not? Doesn't it make sense that prayer should be a crucial means by which we bear fruit for God? Christ is the true vine. He alone can bear fruit that is acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. If we can bear any fruit, it is only by abiding in Christ as the branches of the true vine and praying in his name. Prayer is our declaration of dependence on the Almighty God so that we can partake of the fruit-bearing life of Christ. Prayer is our declaration of our dependence on the Almighty God so that we can partake of the fruit-bearing life of Jesus Christ, the true vine. This is not to say that praying is all we need to do to bear fruit. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord blesses our efforts, all our efforts to build a house are in vain. But if we don't put our efforts into actually building the house brick by brick, it won't get built either. You won't get straight A's simply by praying. You have to work hard, especially at this institution. You know all that. Prayer is not the only thing we need to do to be fruitful. But I, say, I dare say that prayer is the best thing we can do. And prayer should accompany all that we do for God if we want to be fruitful. We should know this better than anyone as Reformed Christians, shouldn't we? We believe in the total depravity of man. We confess that we cannot convert anyone's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate and sanctify our souls. Think about all the time people are exposed to the things of the world. 
The world constantly preaches to them its own gospel of secularism, materialism, hedonism, relativism, pragmatism, self-reliance, on and on. Even Christians are not immune from this. Yet how much time do they spend in the word and prayer compared to the time they are exposed to the gospel of the world? How long do they sit under the preached word of God? And how good are the sermons they hear? Are they good enough to counter all that they see and hear in the world throughout the week? Can 30 minutes of God's preaching can counter all the things that we hear throughout the world and see in the world? And think about how strong the pull of sin is in our own hearts. As Martin Luther said, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Brothers and sisters, then why is it that Reformed churches are not known for prayer, at least these days? You visit churches and look at all the bulletins. We have a lot of Bible studies. But how much do we pray outside of our Sunday worship service? Even that one obligatory weekly prayer meeting is sparsely attended, almost to the point of extinction. We love our Reformed theology. It's biblical doctrines expressed in a clear and logically consistent way. It saved my doubting soul when I came to Westminster and I was exposed to the Reformed doctrines. But isn't it also our very Reformed theology that warns us against the kind of thinking that if we explain it well enough, if we preached polished sermons well enough, that everybody would be convinced of our theology. Yes, Christ himself will build his church. Yes, he will not allow the gates of Hades to prevail against his church. But does he not use the means of grace to accomplish these things? The word truthfully proclaimed, the sacraments properly administered, and prayer fervently offered both privately and corporately in the name of Christ. When things got busy in ministry, spending time in the word and prayer was the first to go. I'm sure you understand. Then a question dawned on me. What am I doing? If I'm so busy with the ministry that I don't have time to commune with God, am I doing it for God's glory or for my reputation as a competent preacher and a faithful worker, pastor? I try to remember that what is important is not so much that I fulfill my various duties as a pastor, as what my spiritual condition is as I engage in the ministry. I want to go out with my spiritual tank full from my communion with God. And I think it is unacceptable that we should run on fume to the point of burnout, especially since our ministry 
is to bear witness to the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Is praying hard? Yes. But if spending time in the presence of God is not our refuge, maybe we are too enamored with the world. If spending time in the presence of God seems a waste of time even, especially when we are busy, maybe we trust ourselves too much. I've grown to be so thankful for the privilege of prayer because I can be completely honest with God in His presence who loves me for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ, even though He knows every dirty thing about me. I'm so thankful for prayer because I have someone to go to when I'm utterly overwhelmed and heartbroken. There are times when I don't even know how to begin my prayer, wondering how God can possibly undo the Gordian knot I created for myself and others. But you see, I don't have to have all the answers when I come to God, praise the Lord. God doesn't require me to come up with a proposal as to how God should solve my problems. I must remember that, all I, that I, I can only see what is in front of my eyes and not even all of that. But I'm praying to Him who's got the whole world in His hands. I've used this time and again how marvelously and unexpectedly God can answer my prayer. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of His counsel from a far country. So I just need to cast my cares and burdens at his feet. He will take care of them. Do you know why I'm so confident? Because I am his in Jesus Christ. My problem is actually his problem. He purchased me with his own blood. He cares about me more than I care about myself. And the ministry I do is not mine, but his. He bought it with his own blood, and he will do what he plans to do with it. My ministry cannot continue one minute longer than how much time God allotted to it. And it cannot fold even one second before God's appointed time. So even when our hearts feel heavy, we can come to God in prayer. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we can manage to get excited about how God will show His glory through our crises, both small and big. I've been praying for Westminster, for President Kim, the faculty, and the staff. And I've been praying for you, the students, as well. I'm praying that the Lord would raise up future generations of Reformed pastors and leaders who cling to prayer for their dear lives and ministries. And I share this message in that spirit. And I have to ask, who am I to pray this kind of noble prayer? Who am I to expect that this short message will affect your hearts to revive and revolutionize your prayer life? Because that's what I'm praying for. I'm nothing a pastor of no repute, ministering to a small congregation in La Jolla. But you see, God, to whom I direct my prayer in Jesus' name, is great. And Jesus Christ is the true vine, 
who will not fail to bear all the fruit that God desires, even through the prayers of his weak branches. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, how we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful gift of prayer and how amazing it is that this privilege is given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Could it be that Jesus came to this world and suffered what he suffered and died the death that he died so that we can pray? Forgive us for neglecting to pray, but even from today, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would revive our prayer life And help us, Lord, to see you work through us, your marvelous and glorious things. Be with this precious institution, the faculty, the staff, and the students, and their families. And glorify yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2022, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.